Section 14 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. New York, Wednesday, February 14, 1906. About the accident which prolonged Mr. Clemens' visit at the Langdon's. From Susie's Biography. Soon Papa came back east, and Papa and Mama were married. It sounds easy and swift and unobstructed, but that was not the way of it. It did not happen in that smooth and comfortable way. There was a deal of courtship. There were three or four proposals of marriage, and just as many declinations. I was roving far and wide on the lecture beat, but I managed to arrive in Elmira every now and then, and renew the siege. Once I dug an invitation out of Charlie Langdon to come and stay a week. It was a pleasant week, but it had to come to an end. I was not able to invent any way to get the invitation enlarged. No schemes that I could contrive seemed likely to deceive. They did not even deceive me, and when a person cannot deceive himself, the chances are against his being able to deceive other people. But at last help and good fortune came, and from a most unexpected quarter. It was one of those cases so frequent in the past centuries, so infrequent in our day, a case where the hand of providence is in it. I was ready to leave for New York. A Democrat wagon stood outside the main gate with my trunk in it, and Barney, the coachman, in the front seat with the reins in his hand. It was eight or nine in the evening, and dark. I bade good-bye to the grouped family on the front porch, and Charlie and I went out and climbed into the wagon. We took our places back of the coachman on the remaining seat, which was aft toward the end of the wagon, and was only a temporary arrangement for our accommodation, and was not fastened in its place, a fact which, most fortunately for me, we were not aware of. Charlie was smoking. Barney touched up the horse with the whip. He made a sudden spring forward. Charlie and I went over the stern of the wagon backward. In the darkness the red bud of fire on the end of his cigar described a curve through the air which I can see yet. This was the only visible thing in all that gloomy scenery. I struck exactly on the top of my head, and stood up that way for a moment, then crumbled down to the earth unconscious. It was a very good unconsciousness for a person who had not rehearsed the part. It was a cobblestone gutter, and they had been repairing it. My head struck in a dish formed by the conjunction of four cobblestones. That depression was 
half full of fresh sand, and this made a competent cushion. My head did not touch any of those cobblestones. I got not a bruise. I was not even jolted. Nothing but the matter with me at all. Charlie was considerably battered, but in his solicitude for me he was substantially unaware of it. The whole family swarmed out, Theodore Crane in the van with a flask of brandy. He poured enough of it between my lips to strangle me and make me bark, but it did not abate my unconsciousness. I was taking care of that myself. It was very pleasant to hear the pitying remarks trickling around over me. That was one of the happiest half-dozen moments of my life. There was nothing to mar it, except that I had escaped damage. I was afraid that this would be discovered sooner or later, and would shorten my visit. I was such a dead weight that it required the combined strength of Barney and Mr. Langdon, Theodore, and Charlie to lug me into the house. But it was accomplished. I was there. I recognized that this was victory. I was there. I was safe to be an encumbrance for an indefinite length of time, but for a length of time at any rate, and a providence was in it. They set me up in an armchair in the parlor, and sent for the family physician. Poor old creature, it was wrong to rout him out. But it was business, and I was too unconscious to protest. Mrs. Crane, dear soul, she was in this house three days ago, gray and beautiful and as sympathetic as ever. Mrs. Crane brought a bottle of some kind of liquid fire whose function was to reduce contusions, but I knew that mine would deride it and scoff at it. She poured this on my head and pawed it around with her hand, stroking and massaging the fierce stuff dribbling down my backbone and marking its way, inch by inch, with the sensation of a forest fire. But I was satisfied. When she was getting worn out, her husband Theodore suggested that she take a rest and let Livy carry on the assuaging for a while. That was very pleasant. I should have been obliged to recover presently if it hadn't been for that. But under Livy's manipulations, if they had continued, I should probably be unconscious to this day. It was very delightful, those manipulations. So delightful, so comforting, so enchanting, that they even soothed the fire out of that fiendish successor to Perry Davis's painkiller. Then that old family doctor arrived and went at the matter in an educated and practical way. That is to say, he started a search expedition for contusions and humps and bumps, and announced that 
there were none. He said that if I would go to bed and forget my adventure, I would be all right in the morning, which was not so. I was not all right in the morning. I didn't intend to be all right, and I was far from being all right. But I said I only needed rest, and I didn't need that doctor any more. I got a good three days' extension out of that adventure, and it helped a good deal. It pushed my suit forward several steps. A subsequent visit completed the matter, and we became engaged conditionally, the condition being that the parents should consent. In a private talk, Mr. Langdon called my attention to something I had already noticed, which was that I was an almost entirely unknown person, that no one around and about knew me except Charlie, and he was too young to be a reliable judge of men, that I was from the other side of the continent, and that only those people out there would be able to furnish me a character, in case I had one. So he asked me for references. I furnished them, and he said he would now suspend our industries, and I could go away and wait until he could write to those people and get answers. In due course answers came. I was sent for, and we had another private conference. I had referred him to six prominent men, among them two clergymen, these were all San Franciscans, and he himself had written to a bank cashier who had in earlier years been a Sunday school superintendent in Elmira and well known to Mr. Langdon. The results were not promising. All those men were franked to a fault. They not only spoke in disapproval of me, but they were quite unnecessarily and exaggeratedly enthusiastic about it. One clergyman, Stebbins, and that ex-Sunday school superintendent, I wish I could recall his name, added to their black testimony the conviction that I would fill a drunkard's grave. It was just one of those usual long-distance prophecies. There being no time limit, there is no telling how long you may have to wait. I have waited until now, and the fulfillment seems as far away as ever. The reading of the letters being finished, there was a good deal of a pause, and it consisted largely of sadness and solemnity. I couldn't think of anything to say. Mr. Langdon was apparently in the same condition. Finally he raised his handsome head, fixed his clear and candid eye upon me, and said, What kind of people are these? Haven't you a friend in the world? I said, Apparently not. Then he said, I'll be your friend myself. Take the girl. I know you better than they do. 
Thus, dramatically and happily, was my fate settled. Afterward, hearing me talking lovingly, admiringly, and fervently of Joe Goodman, he asked me where Goodman lived. I told him out on the Pacific coast. He said, Why, he seems to be a friend of yours, is he? I said, Indeed he is, the best one I ever had. Why, then, he said, what could you have been thinking of? Why didn't you refer me to him? I said, because he would have lied just as straightforwardly on the other side. The others gave me all the vices. Goodman would have given me all the virtues. You wanted unprejudiced testimony, of course. I knew you wouldn't get it from Goodman. I did believe you would get it from those others, and possibly you did, but it was certainly less complimentary than I was expecting. The date of our engagement was February 4, 1869. The engagement ring was plain and of heavy gold. That date was engraved inside of it. A year later I took it from her finger and prepared it to do service as a wedding ring by having the wedding date added and engraved inside of it. February 2, 1870. It was never again removed from her finger for even a moment. In Italy, a year and eight months ago, when death had restored her vanished youth to her sweet face, and she lay fair and beautiful, and looking as she had looked when she was girl and bride, they were going to take that ring from her finger to keep for the children. But I prevented that sacrilege. It is buried with her. In the beginning of our engagement, the proofs of my first book, The Innocents Abroad, began to arrive, and she read them with me. She also edited them. She was a faithful, judicious, and painstaking editor from that day forth until within three or four months of her death, a stretch of more than a third of a century. End of section 14. New York, Wednesday, February 14, 1906.